As I said, we are going to look at a passage from Genesis. It's chapter 22, Genesis chapter 22, and we will read verses 1 through 18 in there. This is a passage that you're probably familiar with. Uh, If you've ever gone to church much, you've probably heard a few sermons on this. You've studied it in Sunday school. But it's a story that never does grow old, which is really true for all the stories that we read about in the Bible. You know, you can hear it a hundred times, and there's still something about it that's fresh in you. We'll read this in just a moment. You know, I really, as I was growing up, I never realized what a a hero my father was, not until I was grown. You know, whenever I was a little boy, my hero, one of my heroes was Mickey Mantle. I remember in 1961 when he and Roger Maris, who played for the New York Yankees, were trying to break Babe Ruth's record for the most home runs in the season. Oddly enough, you know, Roger Maris did break the record, even though they put an asterisk by it. But uh, he hit 61 home runs. I think Mickey Mantle might have hit 54, I believe. That's right. He had an injury. But nearly everybody wanted Mickey Mantle to break the record. You know, the reason people liked Mickey Mantle was just that he kind of looked like the guy that you grew up with, and he was flashy, and man, when he did connect with the ball, it would go into another galaxy somewhere. He was something. I had other heroes like John Wayne and Matt Dillon and people like that on TV, but the one that I look back on that was my real hero, I just didn't think of it enough, was my dad. You know, he was the one that taught me so many things. He taught me how to drive. And uh, I still remember that. Uh, I was 11 years old, and we, and my dad had bought a Chevy 2, or a Chevy Nova, as they were called. Nova was just a trim package. When they first came out, it was a Chevy 2. And uh, anyway, he said, son, get out here in the car, and let's, I'm gonna, let's take a driving lesson. Well, I never got to do that. So he handed me the keys, we got in the car, cranked it up, and he said, okay, go forward. So I put it in drive. This one had an automatic transmission, put it in drive. I really didn't know how much you were supposed to press down on the pedals. I just thought they were, you know, just pushed them as far as they'd go, and that was what I did. And I mean, I mashed down on it, and that car jumped forward like that, and the next thing I could hear was my dad screaming, stop! And I hit the brakes just as hard as I hit the accelerator pedal, and we just about went through the windshield. He said, back it up, and I put it in reverse, and I did the same thing. I just shoved the gas to it, and the car just went, whoom, back like that, and he screamed, stop again. And I stopped, and he said, put it in park and hand me the keys. (laughs) I did not get to have another driving lesson for, I think it was two years. I believe I was 13 years old. And there was a stretch of road between Mount Pleasant and Mount Vernon, and it was kind of under construction. It was getting widened out, and nobody was supposed to be driving on it, but it was a safe place because there was nobody else out there. And that was where I got my next lesson. And I knew then, don't push down real hard on anything. My dad took me squirrel hunting. It seemed like every time it was opening day, and that may not seem like a whole lot to you, and I guess it didn't seem like a whole lot to me. I loved to hunt, still enjoy it, but uh, squirrel hunting was the thing to hunt. It was the only thing that I had to hunt that had hair on it. Uh, The idea of getting to deer hunt was just a dream because 
at that where we lived, that was the only thing there was. Oh, there was one deer somewhere that would leave some tracks, but that was it. Whenever I saw deer tracks, I felt like it was quite a deer hunt. And so we would go squirrel hunting on the opening day, or at least it seemed like we did it every day, every opening day. And looking back on it, I realized what a sacrifice it was for my dad. My dad, his job involved him being on the road Monday through Friday every week. And I expected him to take me out squirrel hunting every Saturday, on that Saturday. I think that probably a lot of times he would have loved to have been able to stay at home and put his feet up, but he always took me out there acting like he enjoyed it. I know I did. Uh, he was the one that handed me the keys to my first car whenever I was old enough actually to have license. It was a 1960 Nash Rambler with no optional equipment. He handed me the keys and he said, this is yours now. It had been our family car for a long time. And he handed me the keys, he said, this is yours now. Anything that breaks, anything that goes wrong with it, that's yours. You pay for everything. He said, by the way, it needs a new set of tires. <laughs> he said, I'll tell you where you can get some. And uh, that was just the way it was. And the thing is, is that was a valuable lesson to me. It taught me something about taking care of things because I didn't want to have to take my car to the shop that much. I also learned how to work on it. Back then, you could work on cars. I never, I never heard my dad speak to my mom in anger. Never did. Never saw him raise a hand to her. I never saw my dad come home drunk. Uh, you know, I remember that he was the one that I could go to after I grew up. He was the one that I could go to and ask him for advice on things, especially on buying or sell, selling or trading cars. Daddy always knew how much something was worth, how much they ought to charge and all of that. And I remember one time it, I was getting close to my, uh, was toward the end of my senior year in high school, and I wanted to get another car. I wanted something that would go faster than that old Rambler. And, uh, and so... My dad had spotted this little 68 Falcon with a V8 engine, and boy, did it look sharp. And I thought, I'd look really good driving that thing. And it would run like a scared rabbit. And, and uh, he, they took nothing and showed it to me. The salesman came out there, and he was just one of these sleazy-looking guys. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll make you a good deal on this, and I'll sell it to you for such and such. My dad said, no, it's too much. We'll give you this much. And he said, well, I can't go that low. And we left. And I told my dad, I said, you know, I would have paid that much. He said, it's not worth that much. He'll call us back before the day's over with. And sure enough, that evening, about 6 o'clock, salesman calls, you know, I, I talked to my manager. I think we can make a deal on that. We'll sell it to you for that price. He always knew that. I never inherited that. My dad was also the one who had a real serious conversation with me one night. I would come home, at least for the first two years or so I was in college, I'd come home during the summer. I never took summer classes. It was a, that summer was a big time for me. It was a time in which God had really been, he had changed my life. I had gotten baptized and I was really enjoying getting to be around Christian people. And everything was so new to me. But I remember one night my dad called me into the kitchen. We sat down at the kitchen table. He set out two cups of coffee. And he said, I need to talk to you about something. Are you thinking about going into some kind of a church vocation? <laughs> well, I hadn't talked to anyone about that except my pastor. 
And he was sworn to secrecy because I was just wanting to seek God's will. I didn't want to be influenced by anybody outside of that. And then I, but I told my dad, I said, yes, I am. And I remember this. He said, well, you know, you're probably going to have to go to a different college. You're going to have to go somewhere where you can study the Bible. That's going to cost more. Now, we can't afford that. You'll just have to do it on your own. But we'll help you the best we can because we don't have a whole lot. And I remember that. And, uh, and he was right. I know every time they'd sell a cow and a calf or something like that, you know, they'd, you know, I'd get maybe a check for $50. And boy, that, I, I felt like I was in high cotton whenever they did that. You know, my wife told me that I grew up in the Leave it to Beaver home, you know, which for those of you that never watched that, it was a show about just like the ideal household where the dad was always nice and good and the, everybody, went, they went to church every Sunday and went to Sunday school. But that was the way it was. And I just thought that was the way it was in every home. I learned after I grew up that maybe my home was the exception to the rule. But I will tell you something. When my dad died, he didn't leave a whole lot of things behind for us. We spent most of what he had saved up trying to take care of him. And I got a few little things. But there was one big thing that he left behind for me that I got to inherit. And you couldn't figure out if it's worth in dollars and cents, but he left behind a legacy of faith for me. And I appreciate that. I wish he was still here with us. I wish that you could see him. And, uh, but he went on to be with the Lord back when he was about 84 years old. And, uh, but I appreciate what he left behind for me. I want to read to you about another man that left behind a legacy of faith, and it was not just for his one son, but it was for all of us who have put our faith in Christ. We are heirs together with him. <clears throat> Chapter 22 of Genesis, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, would, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound, his, bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out with his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. 
Well, this was a day that Abraham would never forget. <clears throat> it says right in here that God tested Abraham's faith. And uh, we're going to talk all about, what we're going to talk about this morning just simply is about faith. And first thing we learn here in this passage is the lesson about the testing of our faith or faith's testing. Now, if you have a King James Version, and some of you might, I'll ask somebody who has a King James Version. Okay, there's one, two, three. Okay. You'll see in there that it says that God tempted Abraham. Understand this. The word tempt had a different meaning back in the 1600s when the King James Version came out than it does today. Today, tempt usually has a very negative connotation. It usually means to lead somebody to do something that they shouldn't do. Or, you know, like if you're on a Weight Watchers diet and someone brings in a big German chocolate cake and says, eat it, and you are tempted, and you give in, and you eat the whole thing, which is not a bad thing to do all the time, but anyway. But, <laughs> but back at what time, it just, a temptation was any kind of a test. It could have been positive, it could have been negative. Right here, what we see here is a test. And it has to do with God testing. And, and understand this. Maybe someone puts it this way. There is a difference between Satan's temptations and God's testing. Satan tempts us and he does so to destroy us. God tests us to refine our faith. And to show and to cause our faith to show and to, and to develop and to grow. Without testing, our faith doesn't grow. God tests us to reveal the nature, nature of our faith and to strengthen us. And you see this idea throughout the Bible. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, we see that it says that Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 22, Moses says this, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And then whenever we get to James, we see it's not just what the testing reveals, but what the testing ends up doing for those who are tested and refined by it. In James, it says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Understand this. Every time you go through a trial, every time you go through a test, it is going to be something that is going to strengthen your faith and refine your faith and cause your faith to grow. Now, if you are really young in the faith, and you haven't had a whole lot of uh, trials under your belt, well, remember this. God knows when to test you and when not to test you. Uh, as a matter of fact, in, in, in chapter 22, if you'll notice some of the first words there in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, after these things. Now, I'm not going to push this too hard, but I have a hard time disagreeing with this old English Baptist preacher named Charles Spurgeon. And he points out on this... He said, it's after things come to pass in your life. 
God, that he, God tests you. God is not going to place a trial on you while your faith is too young to handle it. And I think that that's a pretty good statement right there. But as we grow in the faith, understand this. One of the ways that you're going to grow is to go through trials and to go through tests. That's just the way it is. I know I've said this several times before, but I have never known anyone who was really strong in the faith who hadn't gone through trials, and sometimes the trials were pretty tough, but that's just the way that is. And so, faith, your faith is going to be tested at times, but what God's wanting to do is to cause your faith to grow. You know, I, I remember another thing is that, you know, we think of whenever you're in school, whether it's public school or in college or your home school or stuff, you have to take tests, and you are tested and uh, I remember one test that I took while I was at Dallas Baptist College, and it was a, te a test on uh, part of the New Testament. And there was one question in there, what chapter in the book of Acts can you find the, the account of the Jerusalem conference? Does anybody know? Good, I don't feel so bad then. I, I didn't know what was in what chapter the Jerusalem conference was in. Shoot, I just barely knew that there was a book of Acts in the Bible. I was just a first-year student there at Dallas Baptist College. You know, what chapter is it in? I guessed. I thought, you know, and of course, I couldn't even remember how many chapters were in Acts. There was 28, so I had one shot out of 28. And so I put down something like, you know, chapter 9 or something. Well, I missed that question. It cost me about 15 points. I can tell you now what chapter it's in. I never forgot. It's chapter 15. <laughs> Don't forget that. But the thing was, was that test was something that taught me something. I never forgot the answer to that question. I can always do that. And so those are the things that are good. Don't complain. Don't grouse. Don't feel sorry for yourself if you're going through a trial. God's making your faith to grow. And it causes your faith test your faith, and it produces steadfastness in you. Next thing we think about here is faith's radical obedience. <clears throat> you know, understand this. What God was telling Abraham to do was something that was just one of those things where it's just like you want to say to God, what are you talking about? I mean, really, God had promised Abraham, you know, I am going to give you a son, and years went by, and they didn't have a son, and Abraham was getting to be old. I mean, old as dirt, and his wife wasn't doing any better, and they tried to have children, and they couldn't have children, and finally Abraham was kind of looking at 100 years old, and his wife Sarah was looking at about 90 years old, and God was still telling him, he said, well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a son, and you're going to have descendants as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. And the thing is, is it wasn't happening. And then finally, finally, one day, Sarah finds out she is going to have a baby when she's 90 years old. Now, I realize that that's pretty fantastic. I know that people lived longer back then, but still, 90 is old if you're having a baby. <laughs> and if you're going to be the old man, 100 is old. Can't you think of, you know chasing some little crumb snatcher around in your tent when you're 100. But this was what was going to happen, and God did this. He did it. And now he's telling him after so many years, and we don't know. We don't know how old Isaac was at the time. He's saying, okay, now, Abraham, 
You go and sacrifice him. I'm going to tell you a hill to go on top of. I want you to go on top of that hill. And I want you to sacrifice him as in cut his throat and set him on fire. Yeah. And that's what I'd be saying. Uh-uh. No. But Abraham, his faith was such that it caused him to obey even when it didn't make sense at all. And that doesn't make sense. You know, you can look in Luke chapter 5 and you can read about a time when Jesus was speaking to a multitude by the seaside of Galilee. And it was, at, it was in the morning, on up into the morning, evidently. And Jesus got into the boat and they pushed it out a little way so Jesus could have a little bit of room there, a little bit of breathing room. And plus, the water would kind of serve as a sounding board. And he taught the people. Now, he was in a fishing boat. <clears throat> Simon and, and uh, Simon Peter and Andrew were brothers, and they were commercial fishermen. James and John were brothers. They were commercial fishermen. These were guys that were buddies, and they were in the business together. And then after Jesus gets through with his teaching and he dismisses the crowd, then he tells them, take the boat out into the deep water and let's let down the nets and we'll catch a big bunch of fish. Well, this is not the way a commercial fisherman fished. That's not the way they did it. Commercial fishermen fished at night. And they would fish in the shallows. And they would let down their nets, whether it would just be, you know, a, a, a type of a same type net where you would let it down and then bring it back up. Or sometimes it would be a type of a net that would be tied to the rear of the boat and you would stretch it out all the way. And then you would just start bringing it around and you would get the net load of fish. But you did it at night and you did it in the shallow water. Jesus was telling them to go out in the middle of the day into deep water and let down the nets and catch a bunch of fish. Peter knew that it was a bad idea. And Peter, he looked at the guys and said, in so many words, I just see him doing this, you know, rolling his eyes up in his head and saying, the preacher wants to go fishing. <laughs> you know, and so, they, you know, and, but the thing was, was that he did it even though it didn't make sense. And when they got out there, they couldn't believe the amount of fish that they pulled in. Matter of fact, it was just, a, it was more than they could handle with one boat. It scared Peter to death. He comes sliding over the fish to Jesus and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He realized the power that was there. Listen, believing, if we really believe in Christ, if we really believe in God, we are going to have deeds and actions to prove it. Faith must be accompanied by deeds. And, and, and we don't, and it's not just an obedience that is, that is uh, made available by convenience. You're not going to obey just when it's convenient. You're going to obey even when what Jesus, God tells you to do is difficult, even when it is unpopular, even when you think that, it, uh, that it's a bad idea. Trust him on that. If his word says it, believe me, it's not a bad idea. Another thing is faith's loneliness. You know, it's interesting here. Abraham tells these servants that went with him to make this three-day trip to Mount Moriah, which, by the way, is probably where Jerusalem is right now. <laughs> but anyway, he, as, whenever they got to where they were going, before they went up on the hill, he told those young men, you stay here. Now, I'm not sure on this, but I kind of think I know why Abraham told them to stay there. 
I think if they had gone up there, they might have tried to stop Abraham from doing the sacrifice. I really do. And Abraham realized that this was a thing that only he could do and that he had to, uh, this, he, didn't, he realized that he had to do it and he had to do it alone because someone might stop him. This is the thing about the loneliness of faith. Many times doing the right thing and obeying God and trusting God is a lonely pursuit. It is, because there are people that are not going to want you to do that. You know, I was working for Central Freight Lines at their Dallas dock whenever uh, I got married. And, uh, you know, the guys that I worked with, they knew I was getting married. They, uh, uh, they knew I was studying for the ministry. And they were telling me, they, they knew when my wedding date was, and they said, well, before you get married, we're going to take you out one night after we get off work and we're going to go on those little clubs where the women take off their clothes and we're going to get you drunk and we're going to have a big time together. And I said, no, you're not. You know, and back then I was, I weighed 145 pounds. I was pretty wiry. <laughs> and I told them, I said, the only way you're going to get me there is to drag me in unconscious. I said, because we are going to Fist City before I do that. I said, it's just not happening. And they said, oh, yeah, it is. I said, well, no, it isn't. I said, well, I'll, I'll duke it out with every one of you, you know. And... Uh, I remember there was one guy, though, that he wasn't in on the plan. His name was Big Rocky Gifford. Rocky outweighed me by 100 pounds, and he was as strong as a bull. And I remember he came up to me in that big, deep voice of his, and he said, you don't worry about them. I won't let anybody take you where you don't want to go. And I thought, I ain't lonely no more. And they didn't take me anywhere either. Let me tell you something. Jesus walked a lonely path when he came to this world to save us. But he was never alone, was he? And when we have faith in God and decide that we're going to follow him no matter where it leads and no matter how difficult it is to understand why we have to do it this way, we can say this. I'm going to walk this path even if nobody else does it because I believe I'm going to do this and really I won't be alone. In your hymn books, we find a hymn that I thought was a whole lot older than what it is, but we haven't had it in our hymn books for a long time. And it is, I have decided to follow Jesus. This was a hymn that was written out on the mission field in India. And it was discovered back in the late 50s. And there's one line in it where it says, Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Isolation may be different, difficult, but we really never are alone. And we read about faith's vision. I realize I'm kind of going a little bit late. I'm sorry. I'm going to kind of wind this up here. You know, how in the world did... It says why Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, this son that he loved, this son that he had waited for for so many years. Why? How could he justify doing something like this? How, why would he do it? It says in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that he believed that somehow he could sacrifice his son and God could raise his son from the dead. You know, that is amazing to me. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us there's something about faith. Faith has a vision to see things that nobody else can see. It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are available. 
You know, faith enables us to see beyond what the human eye can see. How could Abraham do this? Well, he, he knew. He could see God's hand in a way that other people couldn't. And then we see something about faith's foundation. You know, why is it? Why is it that, that Abraham could believe? You know, here's the thing. He believed God because God had revealed himself to him. God had enabled him and Sarah to have a child when they were so old. Understand this. Faith is never an irrational leap into darkness. We trust God because he has revealed himself time and time again throughout history. I mean, how can you explain what we see in our world today? And, and uh, how can you explain what we feel in our hearts today if not for a God who decided to become flesh and dwell among us and we beheld his glory in Jesus Christ? You know, guys, those of you that are dads and you have children at home, and I see several of you, the greatest legacy you can leave behind for your children is a legacy of faith. That you're going to show them that you're going to walk down the road of faith even if no one walks with you. You are going to trust in God even though you may not be able to see His hand, even though you may not be able to understand what He's telling you to do, even though if it's difficult, you're going to do it. Your children may not seem like they're paying much attention to you right now, but they are watching and one of these days they're going to remember. Let's pray together. Now, our Lord, we thank you for our dads and the way that you have used them to teach us. Lord, we pray that those of us who are dads and who are grandfathers, we pray that you would cause our faith to grow so that we can leave behind something for our kids. And Lord, we thank you this day for sending your son into this world who did what nobody expected him to do. He died for us. And then you brought him back from the dead. And because of that, we have life. We love you, Lord, and we just thank you for the love that you show us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.